Galatians chapter 1, and let's pray. Father, it's been a good uh, morning of worship. We thank you for how you... uh, Father, how you give us uh, just music in our soul to sing to you. I also thank you, God, how you raise up, I don't like to say a new generation, but you raise up people to keep carrying the torch of the gospel, and they proclaim it in different ways. And uh, I thank you, Father, for our church that is even open to that, open to have them coming in Sunday and worshiping with us, and uh, just gives them a chance to express their love for you. I pray you're pleased by what you see in our church. I pray that Jesus is glorified. Father, I also uh, pray for this sermon this morning. Um, It's about a man who is, he has been personally a tremendous blessing to every single one of us and to the Christian church. He's a real man who lived and he was touched by your grace. I pray that, Father, I'll be able to do uh, his name justice and uh, your name justice through this message. We love you, Father, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we started two weeks ago this study of Galatians, and the theme is grace. The first sermon, we talked about what is grace. How do we define it? We said it's God's riches at Christ's expense, and the idea of God's riches is something tangible, something real that God, out of his love, bestows upon us to change life around us. Last week we talked about how there's the differences between grace and works. God does not want us to have a religion of works, but a faith based on grace. Well, this week is uh, the idea is this. When you talk about grace, especially for me, it is a very, in a sense, ethereal word. It's hard to get your hands on. It's hard to see. What is it really? I mean, we talk about it. We can even say God's riches. But how do you know it's real? How do you know that it has substance, that it's, that God really sends it? So the, you know, the question I I really want to begin with is this, is where is it? Where is grace? I don't see it. I don't see it. it. You can pose the same question with wind. Where is the wind? You go, you stand outside, might be a calm day, but there still is a breeze, there still is wind, but I don't see it. Where is it? You can't really point to it, but you can point, point to its effects. Sometimes the wind is gentle. Sometimes it will rustle leaves. Sometimes it will get a little bit stronger and it will move a sailboat across a lake. Sometimes the wind is so strong it can take a massive 40-foot oak tree and cause it to be ripped out of the ground. When that wind is just unleashed by God, it can do some real damage. Grace is just like that. However, grace is intended to work upon people. Grace works on the inside of people. And when God chooses to send that grace, he can bless somebody like a gentle breeze, Or he can completely, if he wants to, knock people over like a giant oak. Today we're going to talk about a man that was strong in his convictions. Steady, wouldn't move, wouldn't change. But God decided to choose him. And he knocked him 
flat over and changed his life. Really, he wants to do that with all of us. The guy's name is Paul, and the title is Peculiar Grace because he was a peculiar choice. He was one of the last guys you'd ever choose. But God chose him. And when his grace became alive in Paul's life, this man has been probably, in, in uh, the history of Christendom, one of the top blessings, aside from you know, the life and the story of Christ, Paul has given us majority of the New Testament books. He's given us the, the testimony in the book of Acts. He's given us the great book of Romans. Some people believe he's given us Hebrews. But this guy, because God, God's grace changed him, has changed me and you. So let's start in verse 11, and let's read about Paul. The reason Paul wrote this, as you'll see right away in verse 11, it says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. What's happening in here is you have Judaizers. Remember last week we said these guys infiltrated in, and they were trying to lead the Galatian Christians astray. These new Christians, very vulnerable, they were manipulating them and saying, you've got to go back to the law. And I, I have a feeling, it doesn't right, uh, straight out say it, but these guys also said, don't listen to Paul. He doesn't have the credentials like we do. And what he's saying is he's saying, I'm telling you, this gospel that I have, this gospel of grace, I didn't make this up. It was given to me by a revelation from Christ, verse 12. I didn't receive it from any man. Nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation, meaning it was directly given to me from Christ. And you'll see how it was directly given to him. It's very clear. So he doesn't come on his authority. He comes on the authority of Christ. That's why the Galatians need to listen to him. That's why we need to listen to him. And his story goes like this. Verse 13, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God, and I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none other of the apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith. He once tried to destroy, and they Praise God because of me. We're going to see how God's grace affected Paul in four ways. I believe that Paul was specifically called by God for a specific task. He even says it there. And you could say even some of the things that happened in Paul's life were unique. But I do believe that generally speaking, these things should happen to you if God's grace changes you. They should be, I think, a... I don't, I'm not going to even necessarily say in the order they happen to Paul, but they should be a part of your life if God's grace is real in your life. And so what I'm going to do is go through his life, 
And as we go through it, I'm going to ask you, could you say you have had similar experiences? Because this is the testimony of God's grace through the example of a man. And I believe that's exactly what God wants to do with your life. Testify to his grace through you, your example. So the first thing we can say about Paul is he is a very strange choice. He's a strange choice. Look at what it says in verse 13. You have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and I tried to destroy it. Paul was a zealous Jew who was persecuting the people of God that were just starting to follow Christ. He was actually having them murdered. This is the guy God chose. If we go to um, the book of Acts, chapter 9, we're going to use this as, uh, this is his story told. It's the, it will say Paul on a road to Damascus. But I want you to look at verse 1 of chapter 9. His name wasn't Paul at the beginning. His name was Saul. He was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was an expert of the law who separated himself from the world by obeying Jewish customs. It is said that he was the student of Gamaliel, a tremendous teacher of the law, a Jewish rabbi. Some scholars believe that Paul might have been the one who argued with Jesus in the synagogue. He was the same age. Paul was a zealous Jew, and he was a very close follower of Judaism. Jesus all of a sudden comes on the scene. Jesus dies, he rises again, and he has these people that are followers. And the original church mainly were Jews. And so look at verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way are followers of Jesus, whether man or woman, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, where he's going to have an encounter. But what he would do is he would go and gather up followers of Christ, and just like Stephen, he'd have them stoned. It says in verse 1, he's breathing out murderous threats, the idea that he is so mad at these people that are leaving Judaism for some false prophet, some guy who's claiming to be God. This made him mad. He was a faithful Jew. He was so faithful, go to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He talks about how serious he was about Judaism. I mean, he was serious about it. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason to be confident in the flesh, that means confident in what they have done, their own hard work. I have more than anybody. Because I was circumcised on the eighth day, which every Jewish boy who was part of the covenant needed to be circumcised on the eighth day. He was. He was of the people Israel. He was the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. As for zeal, he persecuted the church. 
He was killing Christians for legalistic righteousness. He even says he was faultless. He's blameless. He kept the law. He was a Jew of the Jews. He circumcised on the eighth day. You want to talk about a guy that was proud of his religious heritage? This was the guy. And this is who God chose. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9. Actually, 8 and 9. 1 Corinthians 15, 8 and 9. Paul's talking about the gospel, how Jesus died, rose again, appeared to the apostles. Then he said, it was from verse 8, and in last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. That phrase, abnormally born, means I was, I was kind of, I was an outsider. I was an outlier. I shouldn't have been part of this. The reason why is because of verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Could you imagine you killing Christians? Paul probably wondered deep inside, why would God love me? Have you ever wondered, why would God choose me? If you think that God should have nothing to do with you, we have this belief, I think, that God chooses those who are just better than other people. He chooses those who are faithful. He chooses those who are religious. He chooses those who are rich. He chooses those who are just better. God doesn't choose people who are better. God chooses people that he can display his beauty through. Paul probably felt like he didn't even deserve to be a part of the Christian church because he's responsible for the blood of Christians. Have you ever felt like you just don't even deserve to be a part of this body, of God's love whatsoever? You've done so much wrong, so much wrong, there's no way God could love you. Have you ever killed anybody? Paul did. But God chose him because God didn't choose him because he's better. God chose him because he can display his glory, his grace through him. That's why he chooses all of us. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6. Let's begin in verse 5. He talks about predestination. We're going to talk about this in a minute. But he says, he predestined us. And Paul wrote this book too. He predestined us, chose us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Why? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. So when God takes a guy like Chris Weeks, who was a fool, when God takes a guy like Chris Weeks, who was a drunk. When God takes a guy like Chris Weeks, whose life was a mess, and chooses to give him grace, this isn't about Chris Weeks. This is about God's grace. When he chooses Paul, he doesn't choose Paul because Paul was better. Paul killed his people. He chose Paul because once Paul came to Christ, people would be flabbergasted 
he knocked over the biggest tree in the forest with his grace. I do have one question. If we go back to uh, Galatians chapter 1. If you look at verse 14, verse 14 talks about the kind of zealousness Paul had towards Judaism. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age. And in the Greek, the idea is I was, I was advancing in the school of Judaism, of Jewish teaching, Jewish theology. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of Jews my own age and was extremely zealous. Man, I was running faster than anybody else in this religion. And I really followed the traditions of my fathers. He was for not just the Old Testament law, but everything that went along with it. The ceremonial laws, not washing, you know, washing your hands before you touch anything. The Sabbath, not going anywhere, not working. He was zealous to obey the law. My question is, when it comes to religious tradition, why is it so adversarial to grace? Go to the next slide. The question is this, why does religious tradition seem so adverse to grace? When grace really hits you, you'll realize how insignificant, or really in a sense, how to a degree wicked religion can be. And by religion, I don't mean devotion to God. Religious tradition is devotion to customs, laws, the things handed down to me from my mom and dad that might not have anything to do with Scripture. Why is that adverse to grace? Well, Jesus said one of the reasons is because tradition has a tendency to set aside God's law and the spirit of His law Sets it aside so you can observe your own traditions. And we've talked about this a lot. We, in our circles, have done it through dress and music and other things. I grew up in a very religious tradition. I was Roman Catholic. We had very extreme traditions. And I was zealous. I often tell people, I was almost thinking of becoming a priest. The only problem, I like women too much. That was my only problem. I wanted to get married. You might think that's weird. I'm just telling you the truth. That's who I am. But I thought it was so cool to follow the traditions, to go to confessional, to light a novice candle, to say the rosary with my grandfather. I can remember sitting on a couch with my grandfather and we're going through the Decalogue, and I thought I was really something because I could go through the rosary with him and all my brothers and sisters wouldn't. I was more, I was running ahead of them. Why is religious tradition so adverse? I think because it's all about the flesh. It's all about putting in place standards of comparison. If I can do them and you can't, I'm ahead of you. I'm better. I'm holier. We do this in different ways. We do this by who pray, who's the real prayer warrior? Aren't you supposed to pray where nobody knows you're praying? I'm the one that cries when I sing songs. Does that mean you really are closer to God? we got to quit comparing. Because what it does, it boosts the flesh. Traditions boost flesh. And if, if you know anything about the flesh, you need to understand how it works in spiritual physics. 
not physical physics, but spiritual physics. I'll show you. I've got diagrams. First of all, the flesh, it cuts off the supply of God to your life. Because what you're saying is, I can do it myself. I don't need God. Just give me laws. That's one of the problems we have with church. Pastor, just tell me what I need to do. Don't tell me about a person I walk with. Just tell me what I need to do to be a good Christian. Because what you want to do is you want to be able to do it without him. God wants a relationship. He wants to do it with you. We have a tendency in our flesh to just be able to do it without him. Remember on Mount Sinai, the thunder and the lightning's coming down. God's going to bring down the law through Moses with the Ten Commandments. And do you know why Moses brought down the Ten Commandments? Is because the people said, we don't want to see God. Moses, you go up there and you just tell us what we need to do. We'll be fine with that. Because we want to be distanced from God. That's what the flesh does. The flesh is all about me, but man, when it's all about me, it closes up the flow of grace. And it becomes an outward show to try to prove to you I'm holier than anybody else. And it's not true. It's not real. You've met people that are so holy, but they're like dead wood. I don't do anything on Sunday. I, my my um, town in Bay Village, Ohio, they've got this park. It's called Cahoon Park. It's right across from Lake Erie. It's a beautiful park. But the people who donated it to the city were called the Cahoons, and they said... I will donate this park if you do not allow any activities on this on Sundays. I can remember one Sunday, I was playing basketball, just shooting baskets while my dog was running around with my sister and I'm shooting baskets, and the Bay Village police sent me home saying, you're not allowed to play on Sunday. Isn't that holy? Nobody can have fun because we love God. That's ridiculous. So what is, what is the other side of spiritual physics? If you open it up, faith is what twists it open. Faith is basically saying, God, I need you. Help. Then he gives us promises, and I say, God, I trust you. And when you do that, God delights to work in your life. The valve is open, and his life starts taking over. When you say, I need you, you, you realize I've got nothing to prove to anybody else because I'm needy. It's, all, it's so freeing to say you're needy, I can't even tell you. One of the reasons we do whiteboard talks, I'll just tell you why. One of the reasons we do whiteboard talk is to show you I'm normal like you. To say, man, that, that's the pastor being an idiot up there. It's not about being an idiot. It's about, I am not better than anybody. I know hundreds of pastors would never do that because it'd take away my dignity. You know where my dignity comes from? Go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Chapter 3. Paul's talking about the apostles. And he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? This is verse 1. Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or for, for, from you? You yourselves. Paul is saying you, the people in his congregation, are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, 
with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He's saying, do you want to know where we get our letters of recommendation to prove we are worthy servants? It's your changed life. And then he says in verse 4, such confidence as this is ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves. See what he's saying? My competence is not from me. He says, but our competence comes from God. Let's go back to Galatians. And not only is he a strange choice, so are you, by the way. You're a very strange choice for God's grace. Because you don't deserve it. The next thing is, is when God comes into your life, most of the time it's by a surprise encounter. You don't solicit God by being good. You are chosen by God because he wants to give you his good. Paul says, he called me by his grace and he revealed his son in me. He called me by his grace and he revealed his son in me. Let's go back to Acts. Watch how this happened. Acts 9. Remember verse 1, Paul's breathing threats. He's angry. He's mad. He's holy. He's going to get them. And then in verse 2, he's taken men and women, taken prisoners. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say, To him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? First question in verse 3, what did Paul do for that to happen? We have almost taught that God is waiting for you to perform before he'll come your way. I don't, I don't think Paul was, Paul had no idea the life of God was getting ready to smack him. Verse 5, who are you, Lord? Saul asked, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up. Go into the city. You'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him to the, by the hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarshish named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands in him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have many re heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done. God, you're going to choose this guy? And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument. God chose him. God chose him. He says in Galatians, God set him apart in the womb. He knew, he knew that God was going to use him. Just uh, meditating on verse 15 where it says, this man is my chosen instrument. It's easy to see that Paul was clearly chosen by God. My question is, am I chosen? 
was I especially chosen or is it just a stroke of luck? I just fell into this business. Are you chosen? Or is that just for special people like Paul? Like there's a few that he chose. He chose Jeremiah clearly, you know, chose the 12 disciples. Does he choose you? Or are you just lucky kind of you're in the ball game? You're like the, he chose his team and you're the last ones and he, somebody's got to take you on that team. Is that what happened to you? Well, I'll tell you what. Listen to these verses in the Old and New Testament. Psalm 139 says, Every day, every day was ordained for me and it was written in my book. God has a book about you. That's mind-blowing. Look at uh, Proverbs 20, 24 is another one that's mind-blowing. Proverbs 20, 24 says, A man's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? Which means you don't have your life really figured out. God does, but you don't. Go ahead and try to figure it out, but God knows what he has in store for you. So he is directing you. Not only has he a book about you, but he's directing you. John 3.8 talks about the, you don't know when the wind blows. In the same way when it comes in a tornado form, you don't know when God's grace is just going to blow you over. God sends it where he wants it. In other words, you can't predict his movements. You can't predict it. And in Ephesians 1.11, I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there. God says this. He says, in him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So that means God before time chose you. If you indeed are a Christian, well, he he chose you. I'm not going to get into predestination right now. I'm not going to get into the high theology of it. We could be on it for 17 years talking about it. But I believe God chooses you. It's his choice. It's not your effort. It's not your desire. It's not your pleading. It's his choice. So the question is, how do you know if you're chosen? In Galatians, if you're there, he uses this phrase, verse 15, but when God, who set me apart, so Paul was chosen, and he called, he called me by his grace, so he initiated. He was pleased to reveal his son in me. There's two ways to take that. Some people will interpret it as he, choo- he chose me because he knew I would reveal his son. So his son through me would be revealed. But the Greek says in me, and the idea is God chose to subjectively reveal himself to my eyes. He chose to show himself to me. So how do you know if you're chosen? I think there's a new taste you have for God. It's in you. You never had it before. There's a new understanding, not only of his word, but his will. You get it, you see. It's like your eyes are open and you find, man, I've been blind my whole life. How do you know you're chosen? I think you're 
just like wind will rustle leaves, his spirit, his grace will start giving you new habits. You'll be different. You'll, you won't want to do the things you wanted to do. You have different tastes, you'll have different delights, you'll have different desires. And then the fourth thing is this. This might sound odd, but I think this is what Paul is going to say in a second. God will start becoming jealous for you. He'll want you. He'll want your time. He'll want your heart. And he will start pulling you away from those things that had you. That leads us to the next part. Is why I believe when God chooses steps in, he will sometimes bring you to a place of solitude to really complete the conversion process. He did to Paul directly. Look what it says in Galatians. It's kind of strange, but I believe he does this to us at different times. And if you truly are saved, I think he's so jealous for you. There will be moments in your life where he separates you from everything that has your attention. Look at what it says. So it says, God set me apart from birth and called me by his grace. He's pleased to reveal his son in me so that, and the purpose is, so that he will preach him among the Gentiles. I didn't consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I immediately went into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. And then you have the next verse, 18, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem. So the implication is, somewhere from three to two and a half years, right after Paul met this Ananias, he went to Arabia, into the wilderness, for two and a half to three years, to be alone with Christ. Where Christ revealed to him what he wanted him to do. Where Christ gave him personal instructions. Where Christ opened up his mind to how the law and the prophets were all about him. There's going to be times in your life when God pulls you into moments of solitude. He did for Moses. Moses had 40 years after he was the prince before he led the people of Israel. He was in Sinai for 40 years or in that area, that region of Arabia. David had about 14 years when Saul was chasing him, King Saul. David was running before he was king for about 14 years. Jesus had 40 days in the wilderness when Satan was baiting him, tempting him. I had a really strange time. It was really odd. After I was saved, I, I started going to church, and this guy was giving me books to read. And then I was listening to the radio. I was in sales, and every time I'd go to my, my territory, it was about an hour drive, I'd turn on the radio, and this old guy would get on there, J. Vernon McGee. He'd, get, he'd be on the radio. He'd have walk through the Bible. And I told my mom, I said, you know what? I like that J. Vernon McGee. So she bought me the whole Bible, walk through the Bible tapes. That summer, here I am, I'm 23 years old, just a good-looking, strong man, working landscaping. Every night I'd get home from landscaping, I'd listen to tapes on my parents' deck, four or five of them a night. My friends would call me up and go, hey, man, we're going to the bar, you want to go? Nope, I got something else to do tonight. What are you doing? I'm listening to Jay Vernon McGee. You want to come over? Huh? What? What's wrong with you? 
And I would sit there, and I felt, in some sense, I couldn't go anywhere else. I felt weird, I got to tell you. Here I am on a nice July evening, listening to the book of Leviticus from an old hillbilly, while my mom and dad are just laughing at me. What's wrong with me? I felt like God was pulling everything I ever knew away. Everything, he took it away from me. Because he was reconditioning me. He was changing me. He was cementing my heart to him. And I believe there are times when God does that to you. He will take some of your friends away from you. It feels like he's chopping off your leg, but he's doing it because he wants to rebuild you. Sometimes your family is going to think you're strange. My sister Gina thought I was weird. I'd go to Brian Adams' concerts with her and Bruce Springsteen concerts with her, and I said, Gina, I can't do that anymore. And I had a disconnect with her for years, and she was one of my best friends. You just change. You have a new appetite, and I believe it's God's jealousy. I love this quote. Listen to this quote. It's by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he said, right words, right words come out of right thinking, and right thinking comes out of right silence. That might be the problem with our social media today. Could be. We're always noisy. So then the fourth thing we could say about Paul is this. Is Paul didn't become, what's interesting is Paul was a gifted man. He had to be. He wrote, he wrote books, and I know he's inspired by the Spirit of God, but he writes books I still don't understand. You know, like, how, did he, how would a guy write that? Like, he writes stuff, like, I'd love to sit down with him and say, Paul, explain to me Romans 9 through 11. I just need you to help me with this. Like, he wrote stuff that was intense. So in a way, he must have been an amazing speaker because he would just start churches everywhere. Why didn't he just go on his own? Watch what he does. Verse 18 of Galatians. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. He's getting acquainted with Peter. Peter was a fisherman. Paul was a student of Gamal, a brilliant scholar. Peter was a fisherman. Paul was a scholar. And he goes to stay with Peter to get acquainted with him, and I believe to get his affirmation. Then he met James, the Lord's brother. Could you imagine talking to Jesus' brother? That would be overwhelming. What was he like, James? What kind of a person was he? How did he change? So Paul didn't just go become this single missionary out in the world by himself. He came underneath accountability, and he knew that this was Christ's community. He knew it. He knew the church was Christ's bride, and he couldn't be separated from it. And he came to Peter and James, who were the recognized leader of this new called-out group. Paul wasn't going to be this rogue maverick missionary. He was one that came underneath the affirmation of the leadership. Then he later went to Syria and Cilicia. He was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith. If you read the book of Acts, he was sent by churches. He had their confirmation. So when he went to these churches where he was unknown, 
He said, well, they sent me. The church back in Antioch, the church back in Jerusalem recognizes that I too am part of this. We have this big need in, in America that I live by grace alone. And what that means is I can be out on my own. I don't need the church. The book that said I love Jesus, but I don't like his church. One scholar would say, be like going up to a man and saying, hey, I really like you. I'd love to go out with you to places. Just don't bring your wife along. Leave her at home. I don't like your wife. Aren't we Christ's bride? Isn't this his community? Shouldn't we become connected? God wants this to be, according to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, this is the vehicle where he's decided to display the manifest brilliance and grace of God through us working together as a community. You can look at it like this. Paul was one man who was like a one star. A lot of people, man, I'm going to, how I have Jesus, me and Jesus, all alone in this dark world. It can be really lonely. But you bring other believers in there, and it becomes bright. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to join in with the other saints to be bright to be lights and lamps. That's why in the book of Revelation, the church is called the lamp. Candlestick. Look how this ends in verse 24. 23 and 24, it says, they only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us now is preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's unbelievable. This guy was changed. By what? By grace. And they praised God because of me. Paul is saying, I accomplished for which I've been chosen, bringing glory to God. That's why the last slide I have this. When grace does its work in a person, when it really works, and this is the whole point, God gets the praise, not the person. It was kind of cool when I said to Matt, I said, Matt, you did a great job. He stood over there and he went like that. That's a, that's a guy that gets it. He gets it. He's not up here to perform for American Idol. He's here to serve Christ, and through Christ, he bring, brings praise. I used this illustration a long time ago, but you, you won't remember it, but I just have to tell you, when I was growing up, there was one of my all-time favorite movies as a kid. All-time favorite. Man, when this movie came on, it was when they only had three stations, ABC, NBC, CBS. And this would be advertised. It was coming on. Usually it was on at Sunday night. My sisters and I would get on our pajamas, throw pillows down, and we'd get blankets all around in the living room because this movie was on. It was a musical. And the movie was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. It is one of the best. The old bamboo, the old bamboo. Da, 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 da. You ever see that show? Raise your hand if you've ever seen that show. Oh, yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. Toot, sweet, toot. Sweet, the magical candy that whistles and toots. You know that show? I love, I still love that show. But one of the coolest things about that show, it, the story is this inventor, weird dude, Caractacus Potts, who would ever name their kid Caractacus as, is a problem. But Caractacus Potts, he took this, this steel hunk of a shell of an old famous, mo, just motor car is what they called it, an old, an old automobile. His kids would write it in this bucket of junk. They'd write on it like it's a toy. 
They said, Dad, can you buy that? He finally got all this money together, bought this rust bucket, took it home, put it in his shop, closed all the doors. And the kids are like, Dad, when can we see it? And it took him a long time. He's pulling stuff off the chimney and bringing it in there, welding everything together. And he takes this bucket of rust, and one day they open up the doors. And out he's pushing this car that is like no other car you've ever seen. And it's the car that eventually can float on the water and can fly in the air. And I still believe that it really could do that. Anyhow, but did you know you're just like that? You are a piece of rust that's falling apart. And God, this inventor, through his son, comes and grabs you and takes you into his laboratory of grace. And he welds you with different things. He takes off this garbage of pride and flesh and anger and he welds on you compassion, kindness. Instead of proving yourself, become a person of peace. Instead of trying to prove yourself, you become somebody that's humble. And then when, when he finally displays you, people look at you and they say, who is who is that? When grace has its work, God gets the praise. Is he in your life? Or are you still holding on to junk? Rusty, old, stubborn junk. Where people meet you and they're like, oh man, you're cantankerous. You're really a Christian? Yeah, don't you see my tie? I'm a Christian. No, no, no. Do you have the spirit of God alive in you? That's the point of grace. That's what happened to Paul. And I hope that's what's happened to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for, um, really it's been a great day. We've been able to sing songs. We've been able, God, to just open up your word. And we've been able to meditate on a man named Paul, the apostle, an amazing guy. Thank you for Paul the Apostle. Thanks for making him. Thanks for sending him to this world. Thanks for radically changing him. Thanks for the books his hand has penned. Thank you for his courage to go across Europe and start churches. Thank you for the impact he's had on my life. But I also thank you for other people in this church who are like Paul in my life. They've been responsive to your grace, and because of that, they have changed me. They've changed this community. I pray more of us would be like Paul. We'd take whatever we have and try all that we can just to get out the message that his grace is tremendous.